Chapter Four of the Four Faces by William LeCue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Four, in full cry. Riding to hounds is one of the few forms of sport which appeal to me, and I should like it better still if no fox or other creature were tortured. On that point, Dulcie and I had long agreed. It was one of many questions upon which we saw eye to eye or on some subjects our views differed. "'It seems to me grotesque,' I remember her saying to me once, "'that we English should hold up our hands in horror at the thought of bullfights, while so many of us take pleasure in the hateful business of the kill in fox-hunting. In reply I had explained to her that the art of diplomacy lies in seeing the beam in the other man's eye and drawing attention to it, while blinding oneself to the moat in one's own, and if possible convincing the other man that the moat does not exist. Dulcie, however, had her full share of intelligence, with the result that, in modern slang, she wasn't taking any. "'In that case,' she had retorted, "'you should feel thankful that you are not a diplomat, Mike. You have your points, but tact and logic are not among them, you know.' Sir Roland always mounted me when I stayed at Holt Manor in the hunting season, and already I had enjoyed two capital days' sport pressed to do so, and it had not needed great persuasion, instead of returning to town on the second Saturday after Christmas, I had stayed over the Sunday, for on the Monday hounds were to meet at the manor house. All the other guests, with the exception of two cousins of Sir Roland's, had left on the Saturday, so that we were a family party to all intents. In secret I was determined that before the dawn of spring I should be a member of the family in reality. Mounted on a well-shaped chestnut three parts thoroughbred, Dulcie had never, I thought, looked so wholly captivating as she did on that Monday morning. I overtook her, I remember, while the chattering cavalcade trotted from the meet at Holt Manor to the first cover to be drawn. The first cover proved to be tenantless. So did a small, thickly underwooded copse. So did a stretch of bracken. So did a large pine wood some miles from Holt Manor, which was usually a sure find. "'You might say what you like,' Dulcie exclaimed as the notes of the huntsman's horn warned us that the pack was once more being blown out of cover. "'I maintain still that a drag hunt has advantages over a fox hunt. Your red herring or your sack of aniseed rags never disappoint you, and you are bound to get a run.' As we turned out of the lane into a broad meadow, then broke into a hand-canter across the soft, springy turf to take up our position at a point where we could easily slip forward if hounds should find, I told Dulcie jokingly that if her father preserved foxes, as carefully as he always said he did, these covers on his estate would not have been drawn blank. She turned her head sharply. "'Father always says,' she exclaimed, "'that—' But what he always said I never heard, for at that instant a piercing, "'Tally-ho!' rent the air, and looking up we saw a long yellow lean-bodied fox which apparently had jumped up within a hundred yards of the pack, lolloping unconcernedly towards a hedge nearby. He reached the fence, paused, cast a single glance behind him at the fifteen or so couple of relentless four-footed pursuers, then popped calmly through a gap in the fence and disappeared. A few moments later hounds had settled to the line and were streaming out across the broad undulating pasture which spread away before us in the distance, cut here and there by thorn fences, a winding stream marked by pollards, and several posts and rails. 
From all directions came the field, galloping at top speed for the only gate in the thick hedge fifty yards ahead of us, crowding and jostling one another in their anxiety to get through. Six or eight horsemen had cleared the fence at the few places where it was jumpable. Others were preparing to follow them. The music of the flying pack grew less distinct. "'Come along, Mike,' Dulcie called to me, turning her horse abruptly in the direction of the hedge. "'We shall get left if we hang about here.' She was thirty yards from the hedge now, twenty-ten. Timing her stroke to a nicety, her horse rose. An instant later he had cleared the fence with a foot or more to spare. I followed, and almost as my mare landed, I saw Dulcie lower her head and cast a backward glance. Now we were sailing side by side over the broad, undulating pastures, which form a feature of that part of Berkshire. A hundred yards ahead of us the pack tore ever onward, their sterns and noses mostly to the ground, their music rising at intervals, a confused melody of sound in various cadences, above which a single, deep, bell-like note seemed ever prominent, insistent. "'That's Mary, boy!' Dulcie exclaimed as she began to steady her mouth. A stiff post and rails was fifty yards in front of us. "'I know his voice well. Dan always declares that Mary, boy, couldn't blunder if he tried.' I knew Dan to be the huntsman. On and on the pack swept, now heading apparently for a cover of dark pines visible upon a hill to the left of us, away against the skyline. In front of us and to the right and left horses were clearing fences, which here were very numerous, some jumping well and freely, some blundering, some pecking on landing, a few falling. Yet, considering the size of the field, there was very little grief. "'Who is the girl in the brown habit?' I asked Dulcie, soon after we had negotiated a rather high-banked brook. I had noticed this girl in the brown habit almost from the beginning of the run. Tall, graceful, a finished horsewoman mounted on a black thoroughbred, and apparently unaccompanied even by a groom. That, Dulcie exclaimed, bringing her horse a little nearer so that she need not speak too loud. Oh, she is something of a mystery. She is a widow, though she can't be more than twenty-four or five. She lives at the Rook Hotel in Newbury and has three horses stabled there. She must have been there a couple of months now. A few people have called upon her, including my father and Aunt Hannah, but nobody seems to know anything about her, who she is or was, or where she comes from. Doesn't she ride well? I like her, though as yet I hardly know her. She's so pretty, too, and has such a nice voice. I'll introduce you, if you like, if I get a chance later. I remembered that this widow in the brown habit had been one of the first to arrive at the meet but she had not dismounted. Dulcie also told me that she had dined at Holt once and evinced great interest in the house. She had brought with her an old volume containing pictures of the place as it was in some early century, a book Sir Roland had never seen before and that he had read with avidity, for everything to do with the past history of his house appealed to him. Mrs. Stapleton had ended by making him a present of the book, and before she had left that night Sir Roland had shown her over the whole house, pointing out the priest's hiding-hole, a curious chamber which fifty years before had come to light while repairs were being made in the great hall chimney, also a secret door which led apparently nowhere. "'I think my father was greatly attracted by her,' Dulcie said, "'and I am not surprised. I think she is quite lovely, though in such a curious, irregular way.' 
but besides that there is something awfully taking about her. She doesn't, however, seem to go down very well with the people about here, but then you know what country society is. She seems to have hardly any friends and to live an almost solitary life. Though I had spared her as much as I could, and though I ride barely ten stone seven, my mare was beginning to sob. Unbuttoning my coat and pulling out my watch as we still galloped along, I found that hounds had been running close on forty minutes without a moment's check. "'Dulcie,' I said, coming up alongside her again, "'my mare is nearly beat. Have you a second horse out?' She told me she had not, that my mount would have been her second horse had she been out alone. "'Look!' she exclaimed suddenly. "'They have turned sharp to the right. Oh, I hope they won't kill. I feel miserable when they kill, especially when the fox has shown us such good sport.' I answered something about hounds deserving blood, about the way the farmers grumbled when the foxes were not killed, and so on, but, woman-like, she stuck to her point and would listen to no argument. "'I hope they'll lose him in that cover just ahead,' she exclaimed. "'Hounds may deserve blood, but such a good fox as this deserves to get away, while as for the farmers, well, let them grumble.' Half a minute later the pack disappeared into the dense pine wood. Then suddenly there was silence, all but the sound of horses galloping still of horses blowing, panting, sobbing. From all directions they seemed to come. Woo-whoop! The scream issuing from the depths of the wood rent the air. An instant later it came again. Woo-woo-whoop! There was a sound of cracking twigs, of a heavy body forcing its way through undergrowth, and the first whip crashed out of the cover, his horse stumbling as he landed, but recovering himself cleverly. Have they killed? Several voices called. No, worse luck. Gone to ground, the hunt servant answered, and Dulcie, close behind me, exclaimed in a tone of exultation, "'Oh, good!' I had dismounted, loosened my mare's girths, and turned her nose to the light breeze. Sweat was pouring off her, and she was still blowing hard. "'Shall I unmount you, Dulcie?' I asked. She nodded, and presently she stood beside me while I attended to her horse. "'Ah, Mrs. Stapleton!' I heard her exclaim suddenly. I had loosened the girths of Dulcie's horse, and now I looked up. Seated upon a black thoroughbred, an exceedingly beautiful young woman gazed down with flushed face and shining eyes. It was a rather strange face, all things considered. The features were irregular, yet small and refined. The eyes were bright and brown, at least not exactly brown. Rather, they were the color of a brilliant red-brown wallflower, and large and full of expression. Her skin, though extremely clear, was slightly freckled. Dulcie had exchanged a few remarks with her. Now she turned to me. "'Mike,' she said, "'I want to introduce you to Mrs. Stapleton. Mrs. Stapleton, do you know Mr. Barrington?' The beautiful young widow, gazing down at me as I looked up at her and raised my hat, presently made some complimentary remark about my mouth and the way she jumped, then added, "'I noticed her all through the run.' She's just the stamp of an animal I've been looking for. Is she for sale by any chance, Mr. Barrington? I replied that the mare was not mine, that she must ask Miss Challoner or Sir Roland. For the instant it struck me as odd that, hunting regularly with this pack, she should not have recognized the animal, for I knew that Dulcie rode it frequently. Then I remembered that some people can no more recognize horses than they can recognize their casual friends when they meet them in the street and the thought faded. 
There was talk of digging out the fox, an operation which Dulcie and I equally detested, and that, added to the knowledge that we were many miles from Holt, also that our horses had had enough, made us decide to set out for home. Looking back for some reason, as we walked our horses away from the cover side towards the nearest lane, I noticed the young widow seated erect upon her black horse, staring after us. I turned to shut the gate after we had passed into the lane. She was still sitting there, outlined against the wood, and apparently still staring in our direction. Why, I don't know, but as I trotted quietly along the lane to overtake Dulcie, whose horse was an exceptionally fast walker, I felt uneasy. Presently my thoughts drifted into quite a different channel. All recollection of the day's sport, of the pretty widow I had just talked to, and of the impression she had left upon my mind, faded completely. I was thinking of someone else, someone close beside me, almost touching me. And yet neither of us spoke. It was nearly four o'clock. The afternoon was quickly closing in. Away beyond the woods which sloped upward in the western distance until they touched the sky, the sun's blood-red beam pierced the slowly rising mist rolling down into the valley where the pollards marked the winding course of the narrow sluggish stream. Over brown woods and furrowed fields it cast a curious glow. Now the light of the winter's sun, sinking still, fell full on my companion's face. I caught the outline of her profile and my pulses seemed to quicken. Her hair was burnished gold, her eyes shone strangely, her expression to my eyes seemed to be entirely transformed. How young she looked at that instant, how absolutely, how indescribably attractive! Would she, I wondered, ever come to understand how deeply she had stolen into my heart? Until this instant I myself seemed not fully to have realized it. Presently she turned her head. Her gaze rested on mine. Gravely, steadily, her wonderful brown eyes read, I firmly believe, what was in my soul. How madly I had come to love her. Without meaning to, I started. A sensation of thrilling expectancy took possession of me. I was approaching, I felt, the crisis of my life, the outcome of which must mean everything to both of us. You are very silent, Mike she said in a low and, as I thought, rather strained voice. Is anything the matter? I swallowed before answering. Yes, something is the matter, I said limply. What? I caught my breath. How could she look into my eyes like that, ask that question? Such a foolish question, it seemed, as though I were naught to her but a stranger, or, at most, some merely casual acquaintance. Was it possible she realized nothing, suspected nothing, had no faint idea of the feeling I entertained for her? What is the matter? she asked again, as I had not answered. Oh, it's something, well, something I can't well explain to you under the circumstances, I replied awkwardly, an anxious hot feeling coming over me. Under what circumstances? What circumstances? Yes. This is our gap, I exclaimed hurriedly as we came to a broken bank by the lane-side. I was glad of the excuse for not answering. I turned my mare's nose toward the bank, touched her with spur, and at once she scrambled over. Dulcie followed. Around us a forest of pines, dark, motionless, forbidding, towered into the sky. 
to right and left moss-grown rides wound their way into the undulating cover, becoming tunnels in the distance as they vanished into blackness, for the day was almost spent. Slowly we turned into the broader of the two rides. We still rode side by side. Still neither of us spoke. Now the moss beneath our horses' hoofs grew so thick and soft that their very footfalls became muffled. Ten minutes must have passed. In the heart of the dense wood all was still as death, save for a pheasant's evening crow, and the sudden rush of a rabbit signaling danger to its companions. "'What circumstances, Mike?' Dulcie repeated. She spoke in a strange tone. Her voice was very low, as though she feared to break the silence which surrounded us. Taken aback, I hesitated. We were very close together now. My leg touched her horse. Already, overhead in a moonless sky, the stars shone brightly. In the growing gloom her face was visible, though partly blurred. "'Why not stop here a moment?' I said, hardly knowing that I spoke or why I spoke. My mouth had grown suddenly dry. The timber of my voice somehow sounded different. Without answering she shortened her reins, and her horse was still. Why had we stopped? Why had I suggested our stopping? I saw her in the darkness turn her face to mine, but she said nothing. "'Dulcie!' I exclaimed suddenly, no longer able to control myself. Without knowing it I leant forward in my saddle. I could see her eyes now. Her gaze was set on mine. Her lips were slightly parted. Her breast rose and fell. Some strange irresistible force seemed all at once to master me, deadening my will, my brain, my power of self-restraint. My arm was about her. I was drawing her towards me. I felt surprised that she should offer no resistance. My lips were pressed on hers. She was kissing me feverishly, passionately. Her whole soul seemed to have become suddenly transformed. Her arms were about my neck. I could not draw away. "'Oh, Mike, Mike!' she gasped. "'Tell me you really mean it, that you are not just playing with me, flirting with me. Tell me you—oh, I love you so, dearest. Ah, yes, I love you so, I love you so.' It was very dark by the time we had made our way through the extensive wood, a shortcut to Holt Manor, and were once more in the lanes. I felt strangely happy, and yet a curious feeling which I could neither explain nor account for obsessed me. Our joy was so great. Would it last? That was the purport of my sensation, if I may express it so. I longed at that moment to be able to look into the future. What had the fates in store for me, for us both? Perhaps it was as well I didn't know. We had entered the park gates and were halfway up the long avenue of tall elms and stately oaks when I saw a light approaching through the darkness. It came nearer and we guessed it must be a man on foot, carrying a lantern. Now he was quite close. "'Is that Miss Dulcie?' a voice inquired out of the blackness as the light became stationary. "'Yes, that you, Churchill?' Dulcie called back. Churchill was the head gardener. Born and bred on the estate, there were few things he loved better than to recall to mind and relate to anybody sufficiently patient to listen to him stories and anecdotes of the family of Miss Dulcie he would talk for an hour if you would let him, telling you how he remembered her when she was not so high, and of the things she had done and said as a child. "'What do you want, Churchill?' 
she called to him as he remained silent. Still, for some moments, he did not speak. At last he apparently plucked up courage. "'There's been sad doings at the house,' he said, and his voice was strained. "'Sad doings?' Dulcie exclaimed in alarm. "'Why, what do you mean?' "'There's been a shocking robbery, Miss Dulcie, shocking. You'll hear all about it when you go in. I thought it best to warn you about it. And, Master Dick—' He stopped abruptly. "'Good heavens, Churchill!' she cried out in great alarm. "'Quick, tell me what has happened. Tell me everything. What about Master Dick?' "'He's been served shocking, miss. Oh, it's a terrible affair. The whole house looted during the hunt breakfast this morning, and Master Dick—' "'Yes, yes?' "'Treated something cruel.' "'Dick, they haven't hurt Dick. Oh, don't say they have done him some injury.' The tone of agony in her voice was piteous. "'He's come round now, Miss Dulcie, but he's been unconscious for hours.' They put chloroform or something on him. Sir Roland himself found him in one of the upstairs rooms, lying on the floor just like dead. Oh, heavens, how awful! How is he now? The two doctors are with him still, miss, and as I come away not ten minutes ago, they tell me he was going on as well as could be expected. It was at lunchtime Sir Roland found him, and then the robbery was discovered. Every bit of jewelry's been stolen, tis said, and a whole chestful of plate, the plate chests were open all the morning as some of the old silver had been used at the breakfast. The robbery must have took place during the meet, when the hall and rooms downstairs were full of people and all the servants as busy as could be. There were lots of cars there, as you know, miss, and the police think the thieves must have come in a car and gone into the house as if they were hunting folk. But nobody don't seem to have seen any stranger going upstairs. The police say there must have been several thieves on the job. Master Dick may be able to tell something when he's hisself again, poor young gentleman. We didn't wait to hear more, but set our horses into a smart trot up the avenue to the house. End of chapter four. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks dot com.